0: My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn East and I've been on staff here at East for just a couple of months now. Um, I am the, the pastor of Community Life, which since that title isn't super clear what it means I do, that means I oversee our community groups and pastoral care and counseling ministry, and then uh, kind of that new new member type of stuff. So that membership class Brian was mentioning, if you could all sign up for that, that would be... That would really impress my boss. Um, That'd be just a great way to start out in my job. So even if you've been before, just come back. It'll be good. It'll look good for me. Um, If you're not, if you don't know me, uh, my wife and I I think I've got a picture of our family. My wife, Deb, we've got a four-year-old son, Hudson, a uh, two-year-old, Nora, and then a three-month-old now, Patton. Uh, Even though I've only been on staff for a few months, we've actually been here at Sojourn for a while. My wife and I moved to Louisville back in 2010 so that I could ascend, attend seminary. Uh, since then, we've had our three kids, uh, came on staff back in 2012 as Pastor Kevin's assistant. And so I've bounced around in a couple of different roles, uh, but super excited to be here at East, uh, to be planning on being here for a long, long time, uh, serving and, and caring for you. Uh, and that's what my family's really excited about. And we were also excited this last summer when my four-year-old son, Uh, played t-ball. It was my family's first experience with organized sports. Uh, And so he had a ton of fun. Of course, snacks and uh, the medal he got at the end of the season were his favorite parts. Uh, But we had a ton of fun as a family. It was also a little challenging for me because I I know a little bit about baseball and I love baseball. And so for an hour each Saturday, uh, I stood there and said, Hudson, Put on your glove. Face the field while you're out, or face the batter while you're out in the field. Quit playing with your hat. Quit playing with the grass. Run faster. Stop running. Don't swing the bat yet. Swing the bat the other way. Switch your hands. I mean, just on and on and on. And I, I purposely didn't coach, but somehow every Saturday my feet just ended up on third base, helping coach. Uh, and it was a real struggle uh, not to just ask the coaches, "Could you, could you do a little bit more here?" you know, could we teach it this way instead? Or do you think we could just start the game on time this week? Um, you know, but I didn't want to be one of those parents. You know what I'm talking about? Those parents that uh, embarrass their kid, constantly pester the coaches, and are just a giant spectacle for the rest of the, uh, the parents to see. You know, that, that internal struggle of what I wanted to do versus what I knew I should do each week was, was real. Uh, it was a challenge, I think we all, we all experience that internal struggle. If you stop and think for just a minute, uh, that internal war between what you want to do and what you know you should do. You know, maybe it's something simple like not interfering with your kid's t-ball game. Uh, maybe it's something a little more challenging like not eating more than you should or drinking more than you should or not spending money that you don't have or something at work, you know, getting something done when all you want to do is binge on Netflix for a couple hours, you know, whatever it is, all of us have something about ourselves that we want to change, perhaps even we know needs to change, and we just can't seem to do it. So for the past eight weeks, we've been working through this uh, fruit of the Spirit, um, a list in Galatians that Paul provides us of what it looks like as the fruit, as the Spirit is at work in our lives. Particularly, we've looked at how these are exemplified in the life of Jesus. We looked to his perfect example in order to better understand how they might be displayed in our own lives. And so here we come to the end of that list, to the last one, uh, self-control. And so our goal for this morning is to better understand why it's included on the list, what it is, and and how we might go about getting self-control. So the why, the what, and the how of self-control. I'd ask if you're able to please stand with me uh, as we look at God's Word together. This is the word of the Lord from Galatians chapter five. So I say, live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. So why is it so hard to change? Why is it that a few weeks back when I heard the sermon on patience, I left here resolved to do better, to be a more patient dad, to be a more patient husband. And it only takes about an hour for my resolve to crumble before the terror of three kids who need to eat and get down for rest time. You know, it's like there's, there's something within us. We know we wanna grow, we know we need to grow, but there's something fighting back, something keeping us from that change. In Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, Uh, Paul is correcting a false teaching that was spreading around. So there was a group of teachers that was teaching these new believers that if you wanted to belong to God, if you wanted to know you belong to God, you had to be circumcised and obey the whole law. The problem was their argument made a pretty good amount of sense. It was theologically and practically pretty sound. You know, they probably looked at Genesis 17, 14, uh, which records God's words to Abraham, any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And that's pretty clear. Circumcision was required by God in order to belong to God. And then circumcision was the symbol, the reminder that you needed to obey the whole law of God. These believers, they just wanted to belong. They wanted to experience the new life of following God. And so the teacher said, it's real simple. We've got a little outpatient procedure and then a list of things to follow up on at home. You know, just tell us what to do. We love that stuff. There's no doubt, no confusion. What's Paul say? He says in verse one, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. If you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to, to you at all. He says, you've been set free from the burden of the law. Christ has carry that burden on your behalf. Don't try to take it back. And Paul, in his wisdom, he's thinking ahead of them. And so he's predicting their response. You mean we can just do whatever we want? So we're, we're free. So it doesn't matter what we do at this point. He says, no, you, my brothers, were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. So I say, live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. He says, we're not free to do whatever we want at this point because that idea what we want is not so easily understood. Our desires are complex. It's not quite that simple. He tells us that as followers of Christ, we knew have two natures battling within us, a sinful nature and then one empowered by the spirit. It says in verse 17, this sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. See the sinful nature, scripture tells us this is something of our, our natural state that we're born this way, enslaved to our sinful nature. One author describes it this way. He says, for Paul, the flesh, which is another word scripture uses for sinful nature, is an alien resident within us, wreaking havoc on our relational world. It's a toxin, corrupting our deepest connections with its self-absorbed, exaggeratedly self-reliant spirit. It's a deep mistrust of the true, good, and beautiful God. So what does this flesh look like? Well, Paul gives us that list. He says the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, and on and on down that list. But he says there's now a second nature at work within us as well, a new self, one that's been given to us and empowered by the Spirit when we experience new life in Christ. And this is the whole point of Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit. He says, this is what it looks like when the Spirit is at work in your life. This is how you know you belong to God. These fruit are more and more evident in your life. And so we've got these two natures at work in our life, and they're contrary to one another. They're battling one another, as Paul says. The spirit keeps you from obeying your sinful nature and the sinful nature keeps you from obeying the spirit. My wife and I, about a year and a half ago, bought a house over here on the east end of Louisville. And before we moved in, it had been a rental home for a number of years. And so as we're moving our things in, our new neighbors are telling us all these horror stories about the way the house had looked and had been treated before we moved in. The reality is we don't need those stories. I mean, we see it everywhere we look. Every uh, little project I want to do, if I want to paint one of my kids' bedrooms, I've got to strip off six layers of paint and then the four layers of wallpaper underneath of that and then repair the wall underneath of that. You know, if I want to do electrical work, add an outlet or a fixture, I have to kind of just close one eye as I see what was going on behind our walls before we got there. You know, every project I do requires that we first fix their mistake. Every project requires that it takes twice as long as it should. See, the house has new owners, but the effects of those previous tenants remain. And this is similar to the way we experience this new life in Christ, the spirit-empowered nature that comes when we have faith in Jesus. One author put it this way. He said the psychology of the old self can take much longer to shift than its theology, meaning we know it's true, it's just hard to actually live that truth out. We understand the gospel, yet there is continuity in the person who lived under the law's condemnation and knew nothing of God's grace in Christ. We've moved into a new house fully paid for, but it may take a long time before it loses all the vestiges of its former owner. In Romans 7, Paul gives us a little glimpse into his own spiritual battle. He describes this battle in his own life. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. And so I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. See, the church in Galatia, was oversimplifying this whole problem. Why do we need self-control? It's because there's a civil war going on within our soul. There's a battle of competing desires happening within you. And Can you relate it all to what Paul is saying, to what he describes in his own life? You know, you're fighting sin every day. Sometimes you're winning, sometimes you're losing, and maybe more often it feels like you're losing. Many of us are constantly thinking, I'm doing something wrong if I'm still struggling with this same thing. I shouldn't be having these thoughts. I shouldn't be feeling this pressure. If I was a really strong Christian, if my heart was pure, if I did more, read more, prayed more, went to this, went to that, then I wouldn't have all these problems and I wouldn't feel these conflicts in my soul. And one pastor, a Puritan pastor said, it's as natural for the saints to be tempted. Those who are dearly loved by God as it is for the sun to shine or a bird to sing. The reality is we've been fed a false promise that our our taste, our desire, our love for sin just magically goes away when we start following after Christ. That simply isn't true. Our old life has so deeply stained our souls that we can't experience the renovation God wants to do in our souls apart from first embracing the brokenness that already exists there. I think maybe so often this is the reason we're overwhelmed by our sin and the sin of those around us. It's because we fail to embrace this truth that there's a civil war going on in our souls. And so if you're weary and tired of this fight this morning, to you, I'd say be encouraged. Your struggle is a sign that you are in the fight. The battle itself is proof that the spirit of the living God is at work in your life, changing you. This means that even the smallest signs of that battle are reason for hope. And when you're angry at yourself for dealing with those same things over and over again, that's a sign of the fight. That means there's hope. When you're frustrated with your spouse who just can't seem to grow and they keep doing the same bad things over and over again, the slightest sign of a battle is a reason for hope. And we often struggle to see this because change in the Christian life is often very, very frustratingly slow but God is changing us. He's slowly wiping away that stain that exists on our soul. And so if the problem is a complex battle of internal desires, how, do we, how does change actually happen? I think this is why Paul provides us with self-control. as one of the fruits of the spirit. And so what then is self-control? Proverbs 25, 28 says, like a city without walls is a man without self-control. See, in the ancient world, a city without walls, it was the height of stupidity. Day or night, thieves and enemies could stroll into your city and inflict whatever damage they could. It was a giant invitation to come and do as your heart desires. So you might say self-control is something of a protective weapon around us, helping us to follow the spirit. But we often read and think that self-control is simply moderation, knowledge, or effort. You know, self-control is moderation means all your desires are good. You're just a little bit overly passionate. And so the answer is moderation in all things. And that even sounds a little bit biblical. Self-control as knowledge means you just need to learn right from wrong. And how easy would parenting be if that one were true? If it was simply a matter of teaching our kids right from wrong, hey, did you know that was wrong? No? Okay, now you do. Problem dealt with. You know, my my two-year-old Nora, we've had this problem lately where she'll we'll put her to bed, we'll go through our whole bedtime routine, which is you know six hours long, and we finally get her in her bed, turn out the lights, walk out the room, and what's the first thing she does? She walks out of her room. You know, she wanders the hallway, tries to go in her brother's room, goes to the bathroom, or sits on the stairs and just sings as loud as she can. You know, and if I'm real quiet, I can sneak up the stairs and I catch her in the act. What does she do? Same thing your kids do. You know, she shoots off to her bedroom, jumps in her bed, closes her eyes and pretends like she's been asleep the whole time. You know, she's two and she thinks I'm stupid already. You know, she knows exactly what she's doing is wrong. You know, even in a two-year-old, knowledge is rarely the problem. Self-control is effort means you know what's right. You just don't want it hard enough yet. And so if you just really, really want that change this time, you're gonna be able to do it. But none of these, moderation, knowledge, and effort, give credence to the biblical understanding of that civil war that's going on in our soul. They assume we're inherently good, just overly passionate, dumb, and lazy. Each of these are illusions of control. It's like me closing my eyes and hoping when I get home this afternoon, all those problems in my house have magically disappeared. It sounds nice, but it ultimately isn't gonna do anything. And when we ignore that civil war in our soul, We may experience some temporary victories over temptation, but it's winning battles and losing the war. that's because the paradox of biblical self-control is this, self-control means relinquishing control. Self-control isn't ultimately about mastering yourself. Biblical spirit-led self-control is about submitting yourself to a new master. You know, if you notice as we've worked through this list, that self-control is the only fruit of the Spirit that's nowhere else in Scripture attributed to the character of God. You know, we never read the Lord, the Lord abounding in self-control. That's because there's no sinful nature in him, there's no sinful desires and temptation to fight back, so there's no civil war, so there's nothing to control. And this is ultimately what makes Jesus so beautiful. Hebrews 4:15 says. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. See, Jesus empathizes with our civil war because he experienced his own. God in Jesus takes on human nature and now knows what it's like to fight temptation, to fight that battle of what he wants to do versus what he should do. Jesus was tempted, Every was tempted all the time. He experienced the temptation to sin and yet he consistently submitted himself to his master, to the father. You know, but that was Jesus. It had to have been easy for him, right? I mean, he's the son of God. Like this couldn't have been that hard. But scripture says he empathizes with our weakness. He's tempted in every way as we are and yet did not sin. Well, what, is, what does that mean? It, it means that though... Jesus was God and could not sin. He was human and did not sin. And that distinction is really, really important. It's sort of like a long distance swimmer who's out for a swim and he gets a boat to trail behind him. You know why, why can't that swimmer drown? It's because the boat's there. But why doesn't he drown? It's because he keeps on swimming. You know, Jesus was divine and therefore could not sin. But it wasn't his divinity that kept him from sinning and from giving into temptation. Oh, Jesus, over and over again, submits himself to the Father, and that's what keeps him from sinning. You know, and, and when we're tempted to re- think that, you know, this was easy for Jesus, we have to remember that, that Satan, the great tempter, was involved in Jesus' life more so than any of us will ever experience. You know, Satan knew exactly what was at stake with Jesus, he knew it would only take one sin to mess up this whole plan. And so he threw everything he had at him. You know, and unlike us, Jesus withstood the full force. You know, we give in after a while because it's just easier that way. We're tired. It's just simpler. But even at his weakest moments, Jesus submits himself to the Father. This is biblical fruit of the Spirit-led self-control, relinquishing control of yourself and submitting yourself to God. You know, early in his ministry, Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, the devil comes and tempts him to first turn stones into bread. You know, 40 days. I don't know about you, but like 40 minutes after I eat, I start getting a little bit sinful, a little bit angry. You know, 40 days, Jesus refused. The devil takes him to Jerusalem, stands him on the temple and says, throw yourself down and command the angels to protect you. But Jesus refuses. And so the devil takes him to a mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, all these are yours if you simply bow down and worship me. And Jesus refuses. And the devil offered him food, safety, and power. Not exactly classic vices. 40 days without food alone in the desert. At his weakest, a moment when many of us would have at least given into that temptation for some food. Jesus trusted in the goodness of his master. And as you read that story, you can almost hear Satan whisper in his ear, but these are good things. Surely, if the father loved you, he'd want you to have this stuff, Jesus. And have you heard that whisper before? You know, God wants you to be happy. If, if he really loved you, surely he wouldn't withhold this from you. See, here we get a glimpse into the how of self-control, how we get self-control. Because in order to relinquish control of ourselves and submit to God, we must first embrace his love for us. A love that's secured and guaranteed. And this was the era of the Galatian church. They thought it started with more law, but in reality, it starts with love. This is how you get self-control. You embrace God's guaranteed and secured love for you. In all the commands of scripture, this is where it starts. Self-control isn't the way we gain God's favor, but it's the root of his favor taking, or it's, it's the fruit of his favor taking root in our hearts. And this is because grace isn't opposed to your effort. It's opposed to your earning. You see, if we try to gain self-control without first being grounded in God's love for us, we end up like those false teachers. Just give us more law. Just tell us what to do. Give us a list of what we can and can't do. But Paul says, if we do that, Christ is of no value to you whatsoever. And this is because submitting to a life of lists leads to a life of fear. if I have to fully obey in order to earn acceptance with God, what happens when I mess up? You know, if I can earn my way into his love, then maybe I can earn my way out of it too. But that isn't the case. We can't white knuckle our way into or out of God's love. No, the first step in gaining self-control in submitting ourselves to our new master is to embrace his guaranteed and secured love for us what I mean is this, one of scripture's most quoted passages is John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But we often think about that in the wrong order and think God gave his son so that God would love the world. And the order here matters because the difference is this, God's love for us has never been the issue. Though sin separates us from God, his love remained. And so if you've ever thought to yourself, could God, God love me. Does God love me? The answer here is a resounding yes. Here's how one one pastor describes this confusion. He says, if we speak of the cross of Christ as the cause of the love of the Father, we imply that behind the cross and apart from it, he may not actually love us at all. He needs to be paid a ransom price in order to love us. But if it's required the death of Christ to persuade him to love us, meaning, Father, if I die, will you begin to love them? How can we ever be sure the Father himself loves us deep down with an everlasting love? True, the Father does not love us because we are sinners, but he does love us even though we are sinners. He loved us before Christ died for us, and it's because he loves us that Christ dies for us. And this doubt for the secured Love of God is not something new to us. This is something that's been going on since the beginning of time. It's a weed whose roots stretch all the way to the soil of the Garden of Eden. See, Adam and Eve were created and placed in this beautiful garden and they're given one command, not to eat of a particular tree. You're familiar with the story? They, They disobeyed. And the real evil of the devil was the question behind his temptation. What kind of God would deny you pleasure if he loved you. And like a pouting child, Eve looks up at God and says, you never give me anything. See, in their disobedience, it wasn't their love for God that they questioned, but it was his love for them. Does God love me? Does God know and want what's best for me here? And this weed of doubt, it's spread. It's deepened its roots. The commands of God have been divorced from relationship with God. And we see obedience as something imposed upon us by a God whose love is conditional and who's unwilling to bless us unless we work for it. And a God like that makes us wanna run and hide when we fail. My kids, they love playing this game. When I get home from work, they'll, they'll hide and try and scare me when I walk in the door. And it's, it's a funny game every time because they're terrible at hiding. You know, you can see their toes sticking out from behind the couch or you hear their giggles under the blanket. And it's pretty obvious it's a human being underneath of that blanket. Now, sometimes when we're struggling in this civil war, when we feel the pain of the battle, we resort to hiding. It's what Adam and Eve did. They covered their sin, their shame with fig leaves and hid in the bushes cowering in fear from this conditional God. But like my kids, they didn't fool anyone and neither do we. God calls them out of hiding. And in that moment, his grand plan of redemption begins. And ever since he's been recalibrating our hearts back to Eden, to a deep seated resting in his secured love for us. You know, my wife and I, we talk about this idea with our kids all the time because parenting, if you're not familiar with it, is extremely hard. You know, Discipline is hard. It, like I said earlier, it'd be nice if it was as simple as just telling them right from wrong, but oddly enough, it's not. And so after a long day when it just feels like all we've done is punished for the same thing over and over again, it's quite often that, that I'll punish one of our kids and then they'll just kind of collapse into my arms. And I think in that moment, they're both upset by the punishment and seeking to be comforted, but I think they're also testing our relationship. Did I, did I go too far? Was it too much this time? Does dad still love me? You know, and in my, my better moments, I'll look at, look at one of them and say, Hudson, you are always, always my son. I will always, always love you. There is nothing you can do to make me stop loving you. And if I can do that, a, a broken and sinful dad, how much more so can the God who created us love us with a guaranteed love? And so what does this mean for us this morning? It means if you're hiding, it's safe to come out. You can come out and be embra- embrace your brokenness and be embraced by the God who loves you. It means when you compare your life to Paul's two lists and your life is looking a little bit more like the sinful nature than the spirit lately, It means God's love for you is true. It means in that battle of what you want to do versus what you know you should do, God longs to wrap his arms around you and say, you were always, always my daughter. I will always, always love you. And it means we must be a church who consistently practices grace. A church where people are free to embrace their own struggles and to be open with them. A church that offers hope and not better hiding skills. And Paul goes on to say, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. See, through faith in Jesus, that old self has died. Though the stain lives on, you're not defined by your ability to keep in check that sinful nature. This is what's now most true of you. You're loved by God and you belong to Christ. It's only out of that love that we can begin to face that civil war. Embracing God's love for you is the first step in self-control because you're never meant to view the commands of God apart from a relationship with God without understanding that your relationship to those commands is a fruit of your belonging to Christ. That's why they're called fruits of the Spirit because one of the Spirit's primary works is to help us experience our new union with Christ. As he brings us closer and closer into union with our Savior, these are the visible effects. As we embrace more and more God's affection for us, this is more and more what your life begins to look like. And all of this is a sign of the Spirit's work within you. It's a sign that God's guaranteed and secured love is settling deeper and deeper into your heart. And out of that love, God empowers us to fight sin. And the great lie of Eden is reversed. God in Christ restores our relationship him and you're empowered to follow the law-giving lover of your soul. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with his disciples and he shared a meal. And after the meal, he broke bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. And after this meal, Jesus and three of his closest friends left and went to a garden, to the scene of one of his greatest battles, which was once again a garden. And as Jesus was praying, asking the Father to do something different, to do anything to different, to take away the cross, to change the plan, anything other than make him experience the wrath of the Father, blood began to pour down. His brow, the civil war within his soul was literally dripping down his head. And you can imagine the devil in one last ditch effort saying, if he really loved you, he wouldn't make you do this. See, in that moment, it wasn't obligation that took him to the cross. It was affection. It was love. God demonstrated his love for us in this. God proved his love for you in this, that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. And so as we come to the table, if you're a follower of Christ, I invite you to break off a piece of the bread and dip it in either the wine or the juice. And as you you eat that bread, as you feel it moving down into your stomach, so too feel the love of God settling deeper and deeper into your soul as a truth that is secured and guaranteed. If you're not a follower of Christ, I'd ask that you not participate in this meal, but instead run to Jesus and be embraced by the God whose love for you never fails.